Last week we looked together at Ezekiel chapter 18. And we saw in that chapter God's promise that our past need not determine our future. That chapter told us that what counts is how we respond to God now, today. Chapter 19 is a song of lament. It's a lament for the fall of Israel. Then chapter 20 retells the story that we saw back in chapter 16. The history of God's grace to Israel and Israel's unfaithfulness in response to God. This morning, we're going to pick up at chapter 21. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find that on page 849. In this chapter, we're going to find some material that we're already familiar with. And we'll also find some new developments. Developments both in Ezekiel's message and in what's going on at this point in history around Ezekiel. Chapter 21 of Ezekiel is about God's sword. And if you have that chapter open, I'll read the whole chapter. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuary. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to her, This is what the Lord says. I am against you. I will draw my sword from its scabbard and cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. Because I am going to cut off the righteous and the wicked, my sword will be unsheathed against everyone from south to north. Then all people will know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword from its scabbard. It will not return again. Therefore, groan, son of man, groan before them with broken heart and bitter grief. And when they ask you, why are you groaning? You shall say, because of the news that is coming. Every heart will melt and every hand go limp. Every spirit will become faint and every knee become as weak as water. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the Sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy and say, this is what the Lord says. A sword, a sword, sharpened and polished, sharpened for the slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Shall we rejoice in the scepter of my son Judah? The sword despises every such stick. The sword is appointed to be polished, to be grasped with the hand. It is sharpened and polished, made ready for the hand of the slayer. Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against all the princes of Israel. They are thrown to the sword along with my people. Therefore beat your breast. Testing will surely come. And what if the scepter of Judah, which the sword despises, does not continue, declares the Sovereign Lord. So then, son of man, prophesy and strike your hands together. Let the sword strike twice, even three times. It is a sword for slaughter, a sword for great slaughter closing in on them from every side, so that hearts may melt and the fallen be many. I have stationed the sword for slaughter at all their gates. Oh, it is made to flash like lightning. 
It is grasped for slaughter. O sword, slash to the right, then to the left, wherever your blade is turned. I too will strike my hands together, and my wrath will subside. I, the Lord, have spoken. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, mark out two roads for the sword of the king of Babylon to take, both starting from the same country. Make a signpost where the road branches off to the city. Mark out one road for the sword to come against Rabbah of the Ammonites and another against Judah and fortified Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon will stop at the fork in the road, at the junction of the two roads, to seek an omen. He will cast lots with arrows. He will consult his idols. He will examine the liver. Into his right hand will come the lot for Jerusalem, where he is to set up battering rams to give the command to slaughter, to sign the battle cry, to set battering rams against the gates, to build a ramp and to erect siege works. It will seem like a false omen to those who have sworn allegiance to him, but he will remind them of their guilt and take them captive. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you people have brought to mind your guilt by your open rebellion, revealing your sins in all that you do, because you have done this, you will be taken captive. O profane and wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose time of punishment has reached its climax. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Take off the turban. Remove the crown. It will not be as it was. The lowly will be exalted, and the exalted will be brought low. A ruin, a ruin, I will make it a ruin. It will not be restored until he comes to whom it rightfully belongs. To him I will give it. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says about the Ammonites and their insults. A sword, a sword drawn for the slaughter, polished to consume and to flash like lightning. Despite false visions concerning you and lying divinations about you, it will be laid on the necks of the wicked who are to be slain, whose day has come, whose time of punishment has reached its climax. Return the sword to its scabbard. In the place where you were created, in the land of your ancestry, I will judge you. I will pour out my wrath upon you and breathe out my fiery anger against you. I will hand you over to brutal men, men skilled in destruction. You will be fuel for the fire. Your blood will be shed in your land and you will be remembered no more. For I, the Lord, have spoken. This is God's word. In verses 1 to 7, God announces through Ezekiel that the sword is coming. For many years, God has been speaking to Israel through his prophets. He's been challenging them to turn from their sin, but they've ignored him. And now God says it's too late. In verse 3, God says he's unsheathing his sword of judgment. And Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The destruction will be total, God says. In verse 3, I will cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. And we might wonder if we were here last week, how does this fit with what we saw last week? Didn't God say in chapter 18 that the soul who sins 
is the one who will die? So how can God say here that his sword of judgment will cut off both the righteous and the wicked from Jerusalem? The answer is that in chapter 18, he was not promising physical health, wealth, and prosperity for the righteous in this life. God was promising them life in an ultimate sense. They would not be cut off from his presence. But in the meantime, they may well have to suffer, along with everyone else who lives in this world in bondage to decay. That's how the Bible describes this present world. It's broken. It's decaying. And in one way or another, everyone who lives in it experiences the brokenness and decay. Even those who are faithful to God suffer in this life. Many of you know from experience how true that is. God's judgment on Israel is coming in the form of an invading foreign army. When that army comes... They're not going to pick and choose who they kill and who they don't. They're going to kill indiscriminately. So Jerusalem will be left without wicked or righteous people. It will be a wasteland. Sometimes part of God's judgment on a nation involves removing the righteous people. Leaving that nation with little or no positive influence. That too is part of what the Bible means when it talks about God giving people over to their sin. He even removes from that people those who might point them to God and call people away from their sin. That's what's going to happen in Israel. In verse 4, God says, My sword will be unsheathed against everyone from south to north. Then all people will know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword from its scabbard. It will not return again. Saying that his sword won't return to its scabbard means this job isn't going to be done halfway. The sword will stay active until Israel is laid waste from south to north. And in verse 6, we're reminded that Ezekiel is a preacher who uses very unusual methods. God says he's to go about groaning theatrically. And when his fellow exiles ask him why he's behaving like that, he's to say in verse 7, because of the news that is coming, every heart will melt and every hand go limp. Every spirit will become faint and every knee become as weak as water. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the sovereign Lord. We've noticed before how the translators of our English Bibles tend to tone down God's language in this book. We have another example here in verse 7. The NIV says every knee will become as weak as water. Literally, the text says every knee will run with water. In other words, the Israelites are going to wet themselves when they hear what's happening to Jerusalem. They will become incontinent due to their fear and their terror. God's sword is coming. The chance to escape judgment has gone for Jerusalem. Then in verses 8 to 17, God speaks about the sword that breaks the scepter. If you watch fencing today, 
The kind of swords that you'll see are foils or sabers or rapiers, thin bandy swords. You score points in fencing by prodding the other person on the chest. My one and only experience of fencing was at university. I went once, I got speared on my chin through the mask that I was wearing and decided it just wasn't for me. I didn't have enough good looks to spare for that kind of treatment. But there are still a few people around who make the more famous kind of swords, broad swords, the kind that King Arthur and his knights used. Swords that are for slashing and chopping, not prodding in the chest. Swords that are much too lethal for the Olympics. When the Staffordshire Horde was on display over in Tamworth, they had a couple of heavy double-edged swords. They weren't part of the Horde. They were made by someone today who still uses the old method, forging swords in the fire twisting strands of steel together in the fire, then hammering the hot metal flat, polishing it and sharpening it by hand. In these verses, God himself is pictured as a swordsmith. We're told that he has been carefully forging and sharpening and polishing a sword. Verse 10 says, The sword is sharpened for the slaughter. Polished to flash like lightning. Of course, in reality, there will be thousands of swords descending on Israel. But the point God is making is that every sword that flashes against Israel has been prepared and sent by him. The destruction of Israel will be carried out by an army. But it will ultimately be God's work. It will be his sword of judgment. And verse 10 also says, Shall we rejoice in the scepter of my son Judah? The sword despises every such stick. That sounds quite cryptic. In fact, this verse is hard to translate. Different versions put it different ways. But I think the NIV has taken the context of the passage into account and got this verse right. A scepter, as we know, is a ceremonial staff. It's often covered with jewels, and it's a symbol of a king's authority. In order to understand this verse, we have to be aware of a prophecy that was made long, long before Ezekiel's time. The book of Genesis records the story of Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. They went on to form the 12 tribes of Israel. And before he died, Jacob gave a blessing to each of his sons. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 49. And this is what Jacob said to his son Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Jacob prophesied that one of Judah's descendants would rule God's people. And ultimately, one of them would rule all people. He would have the obedience of the nations. And sure enough, King David was from the tribe of Judah. He was from Bethlehem in Judah. 
And God confirmed Jacob's earlier blessing. He promised to establish a kingdom forever through one of David's descendants. By the time Ezekiel was preaching, Israel had divided into two kingdoms. The north was called Ephraim, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. That's where Jerusalem and the temple were. Ezekiel and his fellow exiles were all from Judah. And as far as the people of Judah saw it, their land couldn't be utterly overrun. Jacob had said, hadn't he, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Surely the scepter symbolizing the king of Judah would fight off any foreign sword that came along. But God says in verse 10, Shall we rejoice in the scepter of my son Judah? The sword despises every such stick. God says, you trust in your scepter. But in the face of the sword that I have sharpened and polished, your scepter is nothing but a stick. It will be broken. It has no power to withstand my sword. In verse 11, says, God says he will put his sword into the hand of the slayer. And in verse 12, even the princes of Israel will fall under the sword, the royal family. God says the scepter of Judah is going to be broken. The Israelites have been persisting in their sin. And all the while, they've been taking false confidence from ancient promises. They were treating those promises as fire insurance against God's judgment. But God's promises don't work that way. They're not meant to make us feel complacent and secure as we carry on in our sin. God's promises are for those who are eager to listen to him and obey him. God continues this song of the sword. He pictures the sword coming at Jerusalem from all sides. There will be nowhere to hide. Verse 16, O sword, slash to the right, then to the left, wherever your blade is turned. God's sword will break the scepter. And those who took false confidence from the scepter will fall under the sword. Back in verse 11, God said the sword he prepared would be placed in the hand of the slayer. But we haven't yet been told who the slayer is. Now we find out in the verses that follow, we see the sword in the hand of an evil man. Verses 18 to 27. God has handed his sharp and polished sword into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon. And at this point, God gives Ezekiel some more street theater to perform. We've seen Ezekiel do this before. His ministry didn't just consist of standing and preaching. Back in chapter 4, he had to build a model of Jerusalem. Then he had to surround it with little model armies. And then he had to act like he was going to smash it. He also had to lie on his side day after day and shave his head and then burn his hair in the middle of the model. All of that street theater was to symbolize what was coming for the city of Jerusalem. Here, it's a little bit different. 
Look at verse 18. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, mark out two roads for the sword of the king of Babylon to take, both starting from the same country. Make a signpost where the road branches off to the city. Mark out one road for the sword to come against Rabbah of the Ammonites and another against Judah and fortified Jerusalem. Ezekiel is again to go out to the main street of the settlement that he lives in and in front of the crowds that are milling around, he's to create a map on the ground, probably quite a big map. It's a map of the route Nebuchadnezzar will take with his army. The map starts in Babylon, which is here. And just so you get your bearings, Jerusalem is here. And the main highway from Babylon went this way. Then at the town of Damascus, there was a crossroads. If you went left, you ended up east of the Jordan River. That's in the land of the Ammonites. If you turn right at the crossroads, you ended up west of the Jordan River in Israel, and eventually, if you kept going, in Jerusalem. So that is the map Ezekiel is to draw, or scrape, or dig in the ground, however he was going to do it. Then God tells him to make a signpost and stick it in the ground at the fork in the road at Damascus. What's the point of all this? The point is, when Nebuchadnezzar and his army get to Damascus, he'll have a choice to make. Which road is he going to take? Now, while Ezekiel is creating his map, Nebuchadnezzar would already have been on his way. He's already marching from Babylon with his army. And it's important for us to realize why he's marching. What is it that's prompted him to march his army hundreds of miles, at least 500 miles? And the answer is bound up with Israel's king. About seven or eight years before this, Nebuchadnezzar had marched into Jerusalem for the first time. And he took the king, Jehoiachin, off into exile in Babylon, along with Ezekiel and thousands of others. And in Jehoiachin's place, Nebuchadnezzar put his uncle, Zedekiah. The plan was that Zedekiah would be Nebuchadnezzar's puppet king in Jerusalem. He would keep the people left in Judah under control. But Zedekiah decided that he was going to rebel against Babylon. He made an agreement with some nearby nations, including the Ammonites, just across the river to his right. Those nations agreed to rebel together against Babylon. And they were relying on Egypt to help them stand up to Babylon. But it was a terrible, terrible mistake. Zedekiah's allies were no help to him. All he managed to do was infuriate Nebuchadnezzar and convince him that Judah and her allies needed to be wiped out. So as Ezekiel is creating his map in front of the exiles in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is on his way to Damascus with his army. And when we understand why he's going, we can see that he'll have a choice to make when he gets to the fork in the road. 
The Ammonites lived down the left fork in the road. They joined Judah in rebellion. And he wants to crush them just as much as he wants to crush Judah. The question is, who does he attack first? Rabbah, that's the city of the Ammonites, or Jerusalem? The city that hits first will have no chance to prepare themselves. They will be hit the hardest. Look what God says in verse 21. The king of Babylon will stop at the fork in the road, at the junction of the two roads, to seek an omen. He will cast lots with arrows. He will consult his idols. He will examine the liver. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar will use divination to make his decision. Like any good pagan king, he will go through a series of rituals to figure out what the gods want him to do. That's gods with a small g. And there are three rituals mentioned here. He will cast lots with arrows. He'll put two arrows in a quiver. One will have Rabbah written on it, the other Jerusalem. He'll shake the arrows around and pull one out. But like any good pagan king, he doesn't want to make a mistake. So he will also consult his idols. We don't know exactly what that involved. Maybe it was drawing different colored stones from a bag. And then, just to make doubly sure or triply sure he's got it right, Nebuchadnezzar will examine the liver. Not his own liver. Not the liver he got for breakfast with his bacon and eggs. When the king wanted some guidance in those days, an animal would be slaughtered. Its liver would be pulled out. And then professional liver interpreters would examine the spots and the marks on the liver. And they would tell the king what the liver was saying. In this case, left or right, Rabbah or Jerusalem. This is pagan divination. These practices were forbidden in Israel. And yet the God of Israel is going to use even these forbidden practices to bring about his will. Look at verse 22. Into his right hand will come the lot for Jerusalem, where he is to set up battering rams, to give the command to slaughter, to sign the battle cry, to set battering rams against the gates, to build a ramp and to erect siege works. Nebuchadnezzar, at least at this point in his life, does not worship the God of Israel. He does not consult the God of Israel. Yet the God of Israel is sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar. He's sovereign over the arrows and idols and liver that Nebuchadnezzar does consult. The book of Proverbs says the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That's what we're seeing here. Now this does not mean you and I should try to discern God's will by throwing dice. That's not the point. These kind of rituals were forbidden. And yet Israel has been using them in rebellion against God. We were told that in chapter 13. That's one of the reasons God's judgment is coming on Israel. And yet God shows that even the outcome of these things is under his control. 
God is using these very rituals as a means to bring judgment against Israel. God will make sure Nebuchadnezzar takes the road to Jerusalem. God has sharpened his sword of judgment. He has placed the sword in the slayer's hand. And he will make sure the slayer takes the right road. God can, and he does, use even evil to accomplish his purposes. That doesn't make evil good. It doesn't make God guilty of evil. It simply means that when the Bible calls God sovereign, it really means what it says. God rules this world. He even rules over evil men and their evil schemes and plans. In verse 25, God makes it clear that he will not protect the scepter of Judah. O profane and wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose time of punishment has reached its climax, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Take off the turban, remove the crown. It will not be as it was. The lowly will be exalted and the exalted will be brought low. A ruin, a ruin. I will make it a ruin. It will not be restored until he comes to whom it rightfully belongs. To him I will give it. Zedekiah and Jehoiachin and the other kings of Israel have proved to be a dead end. Yes, God has promised to bring a king from Judah who truly owns the scepter. But that king isn't going to come this way. He's not going to come in the normal line of succession. The king who owns the scepter isn't going to be born in a palace in Jerusalem. Verse 26 says, he will come from among the lowly. The old order of kings has had its day. It's come to an end. We might wonder why Israel is being singled out for God's judgment. Well, the Ammonites and the Babylonians seem to be escaping his judgment. Aren't they wicked too? Well, in fact, they won't escape. In the final verses of the chapter, God says, the sword will fall on all evil. In verses 28 and 29, God has a song of the sword for the Ammonites too. They might not be hit first with his judgment, but the sword is coming their way too. And in verses 30 to 32, God has a message for Nebuchadnezzar himself. Return the sword to its scabbard. In the place where you were created, in the land of your ancestry, I will judge you. I will pour out my wrath upon you and breathe out my fiery anger against you. I will hand you over to brutal men, men skilled in destruction. You will be fuel for the fire. Your blood will be shed in your land. And you will be remembered no more, for I, the Lord, have spoken. The king of Babylon is God's instrument to bring judgment on Israel. But when that work is done, then God's sword of judgment will return to its scabbard. In other words, the king of Babylon will return home. And there he will have his own judgment to face. Babylon will not escape. 
We have to ask, what does this passage have to say to us? Well, as terrible as God's judgment is in the Old Testament, it's always only a preview of the final judgment that's coming on this whole world. What we see happening to a few nations in the Old Testament will one day happen to all nations. That final arrival of God's sword is described in Revelation chapter 19. And the fact is, no human scepter, no regime or government will be able to stand against God's sword. In Revelation 19, the kings of the earth and their armies gather together. But not even the combined strength of all human scepters can stand up to God's sword. As God says here in Ezekiel, the sword despises every such stick. And no human scheme can outsmart or outmaneuver God's sword. We've seen that human schemes and plans are under God's control. When we see the horror of God's judgment in the Old Testament, we're being shown a preview of what is still to come. But this passage also gives us hope. At this point in history, there was no hope for Jerusalem. God's sword is on its way to that city. But even as God announces the absolute failure of Israel's kings, God is preparing the way for a greater king. The scepters of this world are no match for God's sword. They're just sticks. But God has a scepter of his own. Back in Genesis, God promised a king to whom that scepter belongs. Revelation 19 tells us God will give that king an iron scepter, a scepter that is equal to the sword of God's judgment. Those who belong to that king are safe from the sword of judgment. This king's scepter will protect them. The scepter will crush his enemies, but protect his people. And you know who this king is. Through Ezekiel, God prophesied that he would not be like other kings. He would be lowly, yet he would come to be exalted. In the New Testament, we read that Jesus Christ was born in a stable. He was laid in an animal's feeding trough. It doesn't get more lowly than that. Yet around the time of his birth, the angel promised this. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. He was born in a stable, but he is the one to whom the scepter belongs. And the obedience of the nations is his. And yet before he received his crown and his scepter, Jesus received the full force of God's sword. In the book of Acts, Peter explains what happened to Jesus. This is what he says to the people of Jerusalem. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, 
put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Once again, God put his sword of judgment into the hands of evil men. And that sword of judgment fell on God's king, God's son. Why? Why would God's sword fall on the only perfect one who's ever lived? The New Testament tells us the sword fell on Christ so that it need not fall on us. Our sin was piled on his shoulders and then the sword fell on our sin. But Christ has been raised. He has received his iron scepter. And if he is our king, then God's sword will never fall on us. It fell on Jesus for us. Our sin was punished in him. Jesus' scepter is stronger than the sword of judgment. We're safe when we're under his scepter. But the Bible is clear. All evil will be punished. Those who aren't under Christ's scepter will receive the punishment themselves. Here in the Old Testament, God's sword fell on Jerusalem first, but it made its way to Rabbah and Babylon too. In the same way, the sword fell on Christ first, but it will make its way to all those who are outside of Christ. In a few moments, we're going to gather around this table at the front. This table reminds us that in Christ, we have salvation from God's sword. If you and I are under his scepter, then we have reason to praise him this morning. And if we've been resisting his scepter, then we have the opportunity to come to him this morning. So let's prepare ourselves for this meal as we sing, Come and See.